Welcome to the DTB podcast for August 2023, volume 61, number eight. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, uh, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will discuss the content of August's issue of DTB. And we'll leap straight in and begin with uh, Joe Congleton's editorial. Uh, what's this one about, James? So um, Joe, one of our board members, is really discussing whether fractional exhaled nitric oxide has a place in improving asthma prescribing. Uh, I think a lot of us are aware it's almost 10 years ago now that NICE recommended or suggested that the FENO, fractional exhaled nitric oxide, should be used as part of sort of our diagnostic armamentarium when it comes to diagnosing and managing asthma. Um, but it's never really been, never really taken off. And Joe explores that and explores some of the real benefits that, you know, that might actually um uh, occur if we were to start using it more in general practice and, and in it she quotes still well she quotes this this what to me still seems like an astounding figure that, that there is a diagnostic inaccuracy of for asthma of, of up to up to 30 percent and the, the thought that this might help with that well that's right um uh, in fact respiratory illnesses as a whole there's a lot of people who are underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed and um certainly fractional exhaled nitric oxide has been proposed as a, a really quick and easy to perform diagnostic test. It's far easier to perform than, for example, um, spirometry. And so what she suggests is that, you know, we should be using this more often, not just as a diagnostic tool, but also to be able to check whether patients are well controlled or not. Because if someone's asthma is not well controlled, their um, nitric oxide levels are elevated still. So you can actually use it as a way of being able to titrate, for example, she suggests someone's inhaled corticosteroids. So it's obviously something which um, has not been picked up. I'm not aware of any practice, certainly in my part of the world, that's using this. There's issues around the cost of the actual machine, although I understand that there has been some plans to provide the machines to um, organisations. But then there's also the cost of the tests themselves, which works out at about £10 a time. And one of the points Joe made in the editorial was that the whole argument about using it, certainly for diagnostic accuracy, is great. But is it something around education and training that's missing? She, she highlights the fact that Health Education England makes modules available for people to, to use. Is that part of the reason why it's not being picked up, do you think? Or, or is it just the, the logistical difficulty of getting hold of the tests? Do you know, I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking back 33 years when peak flow meters first became prescribable, October 1990, Virginia Bottomley. Um, and I'd been a GP for about six months at that point. And they did, I mean, we were lending out our own peak flow meters. I mean, the heaven forbid what health and safety would make of that now. You know, we were sort of giving the plastic mouthpiece a bit of a wipe and saying, why don't you use this for two weeks and come back and let me see what your peak flow is doing. And then, of course, they were prescribed. They cost at those in those days, I think it was around six, five or six pounds, which I think equates quite closely to the idea that these um, nitric oxide tests cost about 10 pounds. So the question really is, why not make the tests prescribable? And, you know, let's see if we can improve the management of asthma because there's no doubt about it asthma 
is poorly diagnosed and is poorly managed. And one of the problems we have is actually getting people to to take their medication. I mean, I think a lot of us were surprised when the pandemic started, how suddenly out of the woodwork, we had a huge demand for inhalers from patients with asthma who clearly weren't actually tending to use their inhalers uh, most of the time. And then with the concern about this respiratory disease, began to take them. So I think there's something where I think we could be much better at managing perhaps our poorly controlled asthmatics um, better as well with this. So um, it is controversial, and Joe does point this out in the editorial, it's controversial. You know, BTS sign guidance is much more guarded about the use of uh, nitric oxide. They suggest that actually one in five patients will get a false positive. So there's always this problem with false positives and false negatives. And the GINA, the so-called gold um uh, guidelines that came out in 2023. Likewise, they were less enthusiastic about the use of um, uh, expiratory nitric oxide. So, you know, there is there is controversy here. Obviously, COF, um, this year's quality and outcomes framework, has added them in. It's, it's a bit of a byline because what they say is that to diagnose new asthmatics, you should use spirometry and one other objective test. And one of those other objective tests is fractional exhaled nitric oxide. The other two being bronchodilator reversibility and peak flow reversibility. And let's be honest, most practices will find peak flow reversibility and bronchodilator much easier to do with with peak flow meters. But it's much more cumbersome for patients. You know, they have to go away and do a chart for two weeks, whatever it might be. So interesting editorial. I think Joe raises a lot of... um, important questions about the management of asthma and whether we ought to be looking at fractional exhaled nitric oxide more closely in the future. Just a couple of observations from when I read it. I mean, she does make the point, doesn't she, that that the the case for using it for titrating medicine, there's not much evidence to support that. I mean, logically, it it might be the right thing to do. It makes sense, but I don't think there's much evidence to support that. So that's, I suppose, something that might appear in the future. Um, and secondly, I don't know about putting it on prescription. One of the issues about prescription is obviously prescription charges, um, and then you end up with a whole can of worms with people who have to pay for their prescription charges, then having to pay for a test to diagnose their condition. So I, I wonder whether prescription charges might not be um the, the way to go but why not just make it part of funding arrangements so that it can be either claimed back or i mean how does funding arrangements for other things in primary care work at the moment yeah it's a good point um of course you could personally administer it you know if you put it under whatever section it is of whatever thing you could have it as a personally administered thing so there would be no prescription charge you'd just be a way of the practice being able to claim back the cost um but you're right um, Joe, Joe does point out that the evidence for using it as a, a way of detecting uh, concordance and, and compliance with medication and control hasn't got the evidence for it. But given that the whole idea about nitric oxide is that it's produced by airway inflammation and the whole concept of inhaled corticosteroids is that they reduce that, one would like to think that there must be some correlation between um, exhaled nitric oxide and your control, but as you say, evidence not yet there, and that's that's the, you know a controversial element of her editorial. But I think something which definitely should be looked at in more detail. 
Okay, thank you very much. Um, and let's move on to one of our DTB Select items this month. Um, and this was a, a UK study that uh, tried to address the question of whether H. pylori eradication in people taking low-dose aspirin was a good thing to do. Um, what, what did the study find? That it doesn't work. But, <laughs> but... This is, I love this study. I love studies like this because I love the other stuff you get out of them. So this is a really interesting study. As you say, it was called the HEAT study for helicobacter eradication aspirin trial. Isn't that marvellous? A four-letter acronym that actually is each beginning letter of, anyway, the title, moving on. Um, but yeah, it concerned 1,200 UK primary care practices and they looked at elderly patients over the age of 60 who were taking aspirin, low-dose aspirin, so these must have been patients taking it for uh, cardiovascular disease, I presume. And they um, wanted to know if you take people in this situation, screen them for H. pylori and treat those that are positive, do you reduce the risk of them bleeding? And the simple answer is that certainly um, at the end of two years, the answer is you don't. Um, what I liked about this study was there was some really interesting contextual stuff. So they had to screen, well, they had to invite 188,000 people. And of that, 158,000 were in were ineligible. And that's quite reassuring because that probably means a lot of them were already taking a PPI. Um, so one thinks that's probably quite a good thing. But they had 30,000 people. And of that 30,000, five and a bit thousand tested positive. So that's a one in six patients in this study had H. pylori, which is about what, 16, 17%, which I think is quite high because I thought nationally now it was down to about 5%. So that was interesting. You know, significant number of elderly patients, um, H. pylori positive. And what they wanted to do is say they randomized them. Some got treated with H. pylori eradication therapy and some didn't, and they follow them up for about two and a half years or so. And whilst I think there was um, a significant difference initially um, over the first two and a half years, we're talking about a number needed to treat about 238 patients to prevent one hospital um, admission with, uh, it was, yes, hospitalization or death. Um, due to definite or probable peptic ulcer bleeding, that actually dropped during the second two and a half years to being non-significant. So you had a, a sort of transient period of two and a half years where it may be beneficial, but you've got to basically treat 238 patients. Um, but I say a lot of contextual stuff in it, which I really thought was was useful um, and uh, an interesting study. And just a reminder for us all that... Um, peptic ulcer disease is an issue. And I think for me, the reminder was, you know, in elderly patients with indigestion that, you know, H. pylori is still around. I mean, a couple of things that struck me was, I mean, the problem they, they encountered, wasn't it, was a very low event rate. And so they didn't reach the number that they needed to, I suppose, to power the study sufficiently. So that's why perhaps it's a bit of a negative outcome that you didn't get the... Um, the satisfying results of knowing that it did work. The other issue, I think they raise it in the article, isn't it, that these were people who were already on aspirin, weren't they? Mm. They're not new patients. And whether, the, um, I don't know, do you get more bleeds early on in an aspirin 
um, people taking aspirin, and, and by the time they've been on it for a while, you'll have you'll have selected out the people who might have bled. So, Do you know, yeah, that's a really good point because I'm sure I've read somewhere that the the, the highest instance of bleeding when you start aspirin is in the first week to, to two weeks. It's it's very early on. Um, so that's a really good point. In some respects, you might have you know selected out those patients that are actually less at risk. And then overall, as you say, that that finding that there was a dip, wasn't there, in in events over the first two and a half years, but then by five years, so overall, a, a kind of a neg- negative outcome. And I think there, I mean, didn't their conclusion agree with current guidelines that really it doesn't give a strong argument for treating everybody? for h pylori eradication but only those really at very high risk i mean do, what, what do you do what happens in your practice is is h pylori a thing no there's the quickest way yeah no um now you know we are quite an affluent area low smoking levels um i know that in certain um sections of society it's a very different ball game but i say overall my understanding was that h pylori has dropped in prevalence significantly. I think what was interesting about this study as well, I think they retested um, patients and found that in the treated group, 9% had become positive again or were were positive at the end of the study. In the control group, remember these patients had all been H. pylori positive at the beginning, only 76% were, were positive. So there'd been a decline in H. pylori instance in the control group. So it, as you say, uh, interesting study more because it has reminds us, I think, about H. pylori and the intricacies of that and um, the elements. But but I think, yes, interesting case, but one of those studies that actually perhaps just doesn't tell us anything more or doesn't change our management, I think, um, at, at the, you know, but more gives us an idea of what's going on, I suppose. Yes, confirms what we do rather than alters it, I guess. But okay, thank you, thank you very much. And and then finally, this month our main review article is one of our new drug reviews. Do you want to um, quick overview of what it is? So this is a new drug, finineron. Um, it's similar as its name implies to spironolactone and epleronon, and it's basically a mineral corticoid receptor blocker that's been licensed for the treatment of CKD with albinuria, stages three and four, associated with type two diabetics in adults. So this this is an area that is being crowded out at the moment, isn't it, with new drugs. Um, so we've just had the Flozins or SGLT2 inhibitors that have been uh, recently licensed in a similar way. Um, so Flineron, as I say, is a mineral corticoid receptor block. It's a tablet, 20 milligrams once a day. Um, and it's, it's been licensed uh, in an attempt to reduce the significant problems with um, diabetes causing end-stage renal disease um, and CKD in patients. So that's the background. And this is a very good review of the studies that have have led up to its um, licensing and the background to that. And the two key studies that that we look at, what did they actually show? Yeah, so we've got two studies, uh, Fidelio, um, which looked at its ability to reduce um, CKD or kidney disease 
And then we also have Figaro, which looked at its ability to reduce cardiovascular disease in patients. Now, Fidelio, these are both phase three trials, and Fidelio was a placebo-controlled, randomized control trial of about 5,000 patients with CKD, follow-up for about two and a half um, years. And they had this composite endpoint of patients with either end-stage renal failure or death from renal disease, or this greater than 40% reduction in EGFR. And at this composite primary endpoint, there was about uh, 17, 18% of patients who were given um, fenilurone uh, for two and a half years versus about an instance of about 21% in the control group. So that's an absolute risk reduction of about three and a half percent or a number needed to treat of 29. But I think what was interesting is that if you take apart that composite endpoint, it was only the greater than 40% reduction in EGFR that was statistically significant. And just like its distant relative spironolactone and eplerinone, the issue here is that patients do get raised potassiums with this drug. And about 18% of patients in the treatment group developed hyperkalemia compared to 9% in the control group. And if you look at those who had a potassium over six, which is obviously the where things get a bit um, concerning, then you look talking about possibly almost 10 times as many patients in the um, fenilurone group developing that compared to the placebo. So it's about 10% in the uh, treatment group versus about 1% in the control group. So that's its benefit. Its benefit for cardiovascular in the uh, Figaro study was was less impressive. And you had a composite primary outcome then of, of sort of once again, this sort of cardiovascular endpoints, things like non-fatal heart attack, non-fatal stroke, hospitalization from heart failure or death from cardiovascular causes. You had 12% of participants in the treatment group versus 14% of participants in the placebo group. So once again, number needs to treat of about 47. But what was interesting in that, only hospitalizations from heart failure were, were actually statistically significant. Um, and the difference between the groups for, for secondary renal outcome, which they also had in that study, was not statistically significant. So interesting studies for me, it's sort of, I just, there's been no comparison with things like the SGLT2 um, inhibitors yet. I gather that, you know, that's on the cards. Um, it feels like a lot of drugs are, are sort of backing up to, to be used in the management of CKD. CKD is a major issue um, in patients and diabetes, but, but I, I worry that we're treating the endpoint of CKD rather than really getting good at managing um, diabetes. And I just worry about the, the polypharmacy that we're developing in this very crowded area. But interesting, interesting drug. Um, I say now licensed, it's not expensive. It's about £37 a month. Um, and we'll see where this goes. And, and surprisingly priced at similar, similar rate to the Flozins, which... Uh... <laughs> Uh, how did that happen? I wonder. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other issue with it is it's slightly tricky to use, isn't it? That you've you've got to got to manage the the potassium levels carefully, um, and it, it again it has a, a titration dose based on on renal function as well. So um, I suppose that's what you'd expect in in 
in this group of drugs, but it, it perhaps makes it slightly trickier to use. Really, I think so, and I and I really worry about the the capacity, particularly as this will probably be managed in primary care. The capacity of primary care to be just the, the you know the the management. I think reading around this, the the, the feeling is that you should do blood tests at one month. Um, four month and then four monthly for patients on this drug um, and uh, the capacity in primary care for to do drug tests is already seriously stretched and, and we have an eight week wait locally for blood tests that are just routine eight weeks um, you know for diagnostic you know it, it if you've got someone who really feels quite poorly getting a blood test at the moment is getting quite tough um, and I and obviously you know raised potassiums happen normally the problem with raised potassium is that you know you get a delay in the lab and you get a raised potassium back and that then you know you then have to sort of it, it's a lot of work and I'm just worried that you know if you've got 10% of patients on this drug having a, a significantly raised potassium or actually almost tw- one in five having a moderately raised that means that perhaps 20% of those three blood tests each year are going to need to be repeated. So it's, it's an, yeah, I think this is going to be one of the situations where it seems like a good idea. But if you, if you look at the benefit we're getting from this drug at the moment, you know, what we've demonstrated is that, you know, there's a reduction in a greater than 40% reduction in EGFR. That's, you know, what the uh, Fidelio study showed. Well, what does that mean? You know, if you're 85 does a 40% reduction in your EGFR matter? You know, if you're asymptomatic and this is, you know, this is the thing. So I think, you know, what are the really important outcomes here? What what are the really important things we're trying to achieve? Um, Or are we just just playing with the numbers? And again, it's that classic problem, isn't it? When you've got these composite endpoints or outcomes, how do you explain those to the patient in front of you saying, well, it might do a bit of this and a bit of that, but that, as you say, the only one that, that was statistically significant when he broke them down was the was the 40% reduction. So describing the benefits is, is hard and getting your head around them is even harder. Um, and I just wonder whether all the noise and momentum is about SGLT2 inhibitors at the moment, isn't it? And I wonder whether this is going to get a bit lost in, in, in the wake of those drugs. I think you're right. When you think about what's happened in diabetes and the pyoglitazones and, and yes, you know, drugs come and they go and, and there's sort of like a pecking order develops. And I, and I, yes, we'll see where this goes. I mean, I think what's fascinating is um, my understanding is that SGLT2s reduce the risk of raised potassium in, in patients taking certainly spironolactone and epinephrine. So it may be that actually when it's using combination, we, we see less of some of the complications that it seems to uh, cause. But but I think it's getting a, it is a very complicated area. And as you say, just trying to explain CKD to patients, particularly those where if you do the four, um, the, the, there's a calculation you can do, which will tell patients what their personal risk is of them developing end-stage renal failure. Um, it's available on the NICE guidance. And many, many of these patients that you might spend some time discussing these sorts of medications with when you do that you discover that they've got a less than 0.1 percent risk of going on to have end-stage renal failure and you think well what am i doing (laughs) what am i doing with this so i think it's really important that we do understand exactly what we're trying to achieve with these drugs and make sure that we do focus on those patients that are really going to benefit 
But as I said, they have been um, recommended by, I think, both NICE and the Scottish Medicines Consortium. Um, so it'd be just interesting to see what the uptake is. Yeah, exactly. Okay, thank you. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. You can also find our previous podcasts there. They're available from our homepage. There's a button at the top of our homepage. You can click that and find all our previous podcasts. And as ever, if you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know, suggest topics, um, offer to be a peer reviewer, or even help us write articles. Just email us at dtb at bmj.com. So just leaves me to say thank you for listening to us. And we hope you'll join us in a month's time for the September podcast.